Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the world of wine, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. I'm here once again with Clay Morrison for the third and final instalment of our interviews where we've been talking about Zinfandel and the history of California. And in this episode, we look at the terroir of Zinfandel, how Zinfandel can radically change according to the vineyard it's planted in. So which wine uh, should we try first? We're going to start with uh, the Jack's Cabin Vineyard. And this is a great um, illustration of respecting what, you know, the the land has given us in terms of farming. I would be the first to say that, you know, having a southern facing slope with Zinfandel is not what most people would consider an ideal sun exposure because if your vines are facing south, then what that means is that you get, you know, very little heat on the eastern side of the canopy as the sun's coming up and a tremendous amount of sun exposure and heat on the western side of the canopy. This is the slope that we had to work with, so this is what we planted. And instead of shying away from it, we embrace it. Does it take a little bit more attention to detail from a farming perspective? Do we have to augment our canopy management? Yes and yes. But again, when you are when, when our job as a winemaker is to pay homage to that site and do everything in our power to express that unique site in the bottle, it makes it a lot easier. And this produces such a distinctive, unique Zinfandel because you certainly get the savory, ripe component from all that sun exposure on the western side of the canopy, but at the same time, the wine has amazing lift. It's got acid, and that dichotomy comes from the eastern side of the sun exposure. So it's a really fancy way of saying we don't always get the most uniformity of ripening, you know, but this is what this site is predicated to, and we want to pay homage to that. So tasting this wine, um, beyond what you've said about the ripeness, but the balance as well, it's also got that really nice, uh, smooth, but slightly grainy tannic structure. Mm-hmm. And where is that coming from? Because Zinfandel can obviously be very opulent and ripe and jammy, but this has got real structure to it. So I think that's one of the, the hallmark characteristics of Rockpile, is the ability to have balanced, structured wines. So the structure comes from a couple of different places. I mean, first of all, talk about the terroir. Even though this is one of our, you know, flattest vineyards, it still gets up to 17 degrees slope in certain places. Um, You're also dealing with very relatively poor soils up there. And so when you have slope and poor soils, you're not going to have a lot of water retention. So less water retention and no fog, remember, is going to lead to smaller berry sizes. Smaller berries, very simply, give you the opportunity for more phenolic extraction from the skins. And so rock piles and fidels always are going to have the ability to have more tannin. The other thing that's more unique to our farming practices is that when you promote homogenization of ripening, what remember I said that with my brother's thesis, you know, you had to have measurables. I mean, this was this was a thesis. This wasn't a bunch of people's opinions on tasting. So what were the measures of quality? So we know that there's certain um, phenolic composition that correlates with quality and certain chemistry that correlates with quality. So when you have an underripe vineyard, you haven't maximized the phenolic potential. And when you have an overripe vineyard, therefore, let's talk about dehydrated fruit, you've actually 
peaked and now degressed in terms of your phenolic potential because as those skins get compromised, you're actually you know, losing phenolics. So when you can get an optimally ripe vineyard, homogeneously ripened, you can maximize your phenolic potential. And I think that's one of the unique things that in Rockpile is that the ability to get homogenization of ripening, which gives you the great opportunity to have very well-structured wines. So the alcohol is fourteen point six seven percent. So two things to say about that: you know, it's relatively high alcohol, but you don't really feel it's in the wine. Of course, that goes into the balance, doesn't it? That you know, Zinfandel should be a high alcohol wine. Yeah, Zinfandel is not you know Chardonnay. It's not Pinot Noir, um, and there's a lot of Pinots that are higher alcohol than that. But you know, each varietal is going to be you know unique. Um, and, you know, I think as an average, yes, Zinfandel is going to be higher than Sauvignon Blanc, than Chardonnay, and more than likely Pinot Noir. But, you know, ETS um, <laughs> released some data a couple years ago about the average Brexit harvest for the entire state of California of Cabernet and Zinfandel, um, but all the varietals. And Cabernet was over one brick higher at the average harvest in the state of California. So... I think Zinfandel just kind of gets a bad rap because yeah. people expect it to be, you know, overripe, jammy, fruit bombs, monochromatic. And so one of the first things they do with Zinfandel is they look at the alcohol level and there's a perception of that. You know, I always challenge people, you know, look at this, if you're going to, if alcohol is important to you, just look at the alcohol on every wine that you try because I think you would be shocked to see that a lot of Cabernets are maybe not higher than Zinfandel but in that same vein. You know, what makes a great wine is not its alcohol level. It's that perfect site that allows you to create a varietally correct wine that is both structured and balanced. And again, all credit to Rockpile that it gives us the ability to do that. Yeah, and that's the key word, isn't it? Balance. Balance. A high alcohol Pinot is not pleasant, whereas yeah. a Zinfandel at this alcohol is perfectly pleasant. Cause it's all Absolutely. Part of, it's all part of the wine. And then I, I tasted one of Schaefer's wines recently, which was 15.8%. Yeah. And which is just completely out of balance because that's just way too much sugar that's in the grapes and you just got this massive, ripe, jammy, alcohol-driven wine. Yeah, back to the point. A yeah. raisin tastes like a raisin yeah. tastes like a raisin, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and like I said, so fortunate to have been uh, provided you know, amazing experiences uh, throughout my career in wine, but to have the experience I did with Jacques Lardier at a very young age, I mean, it was, uh, it was an epiphany. There's no other way to say it. And can you explain the 0.67%? So it actually says 0.57. Oh, you might have to. I don't have my glasses on. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's our kind of uh, way of, um, A, having fun. If you're not having fun in what you're doing in life, do something different. Life is too short um, to not enjoy every single day to the fullest. Um, that being said, I do kind of get frustrated with some of the government regulation <laughs> that surrounds the the wine industry. So it's a little bit of poking fun, saying that we're going to take the decimal point out, you know, to the hundredth. Um, but the fun aspect of it is, is that it's a way for us to, you know, pay homage to certain numbers that are important to us and our family. And so. You know, we always want to be very accurate with our alcohols. So, you know, this alcohol might be 14.62, but legally we can put 14.57 as long as it's within, you know, a half a point. Um, and, you know, you'll see, often see, you know, weird numbers on our bottles, you know, 14.15, you know, 13.82. 
and their little family jokes. And so, you know, my wife was born in 1982. Uh, my children were born on the 24th of the month, the 13th of the month, and the 15th of the month. And so we'll slip those in there. Um, I was born in 1975, so we'll slip 75 in. And then, you know, my football number in college was number 57, which is the inverse of 75. So we'll slip 57s in there every once in a while. So we have some fun with it. Yeah, alcohol on the label is very rarely accurate. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I will give the TTV credit for that. Thank God that they don't make you, because you would have to change the alcohol every year, because again, every vintage is not supposed to stay mm -hmm. the same. And so our alcohols, pretty much, they're going to range from you know low 14s to high 14s. Um, and you know unless it deviates out of that range, you know we won't change the, the stated alcohol on it, because it's just one more pain in the ass. Right. And so, again, we feel fairly confident that at 14.57, you know, we're not going to have a wine that's going to be over 15% alcohol, and rarely are we ever going to have a Zinfandel that's under 14%. So, so it's a rough guide. Yeah, it's a, it's a rough guide. Yeah. All right. So, should we try the other two wines side by side? You know, so I really wanted to the the sixteen. Now the cemetery is kind of the wild card because okay. it's a sixteen. Right. And so, if you want to try this side by side with the Jack's Cabin, we can do that because these are more um, apples to apples comparisons okay. because they're both seventeens. And then we'll talk a little bit about cemetery and why the sixteen is the current release there. So this is um, the steepest block that we farm in Rockpile. Um, it gets up to a 40 degree slope, but it is all planted with the slope. And amazingly, it's only 150 yards away from the Jack's Cabin vineyard. But it is the polar opposite. Jack's Cabin faces south, 15 degree slope, Rockpile Ridge. They come together at that apex right there, faces north at 40 degree slope. So when you start to think about that, unbelievable drainage because of the slope. But think about the sun exposure and not just you know, the way it faces, but the azimuth of it, right? The angle. When you have a 40 degree slope, you have indirect sun until five o'clock in the afternoon when you start to get some direct sun exposure on that site. And so as close as these two vineyards are in proximity, we typically pick them anywhere from three to four weeks apart with the obvious Jack's Cabin being picked first. Rockpile Ridge Zinfandel is not only our last Zinfandel picked, it is always our last varietal picked in Rockpile. We pick our Cabernets before that, we pick Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, because that terroir, that site. And in terms of the, the difference in the wine, it's exactly what you would expect, right? You know, a little higher acid, much finer grained tannins. Mm -hmm. You get this amazing herbal mineral notes. The fruit isn't nearly as prominent. I mean, it's still there. It's Zinfandel. You know, we're always going to have beautiful fruit in Zinfandel. But it almost takes a, a back seat to these amazing tertiary notes. I mean, it is a very complex and differently structured Zinfandel. Yeah, it's a nice smoky... Uh, smoky nose and then a really dusty palate yeah. as well. Yeah. It's coming from those tannins that you mentioned. And it's got that fruit, but it's got that spiciness as well. It's very spicy. And, you know, um, there's a... People often attribute black pepper to Dry Creek Valley, which I think is a great indicator. To me, this has more of, you know, kind of a white pepper spice. It's a little bit different. It's not... Um, that that kind of lingering back pepper. I mean, it, it, it's a wine that makes you think, and that's one of my favorite things in life. Um, 
is when a wine, you know, it has to have varietal correctness, but it, when it really makes you think, you know, I call them intellectual wines. I, I just think that's the what I love, what I search out. And it's not to say that there's anything, you know, wrong with Jack's Cabin, you know, because Jack's Cabin is, you know, you celebrate that site for what it is, that dichotomy of this rich ripe fruit with this amazing acid on the back end but Brockpile Ridge is kind of seamless all the way through with that fine grain tannin and that vein of acid but all these complex flavors that are there from start to finish. That's what I really was impressed by these wines when I first tried them is that they make they make you rethink Zinfandel. You talk about the intellectual aspects of them and part of that intellectual aspect is that you're having to rethink. You are. Um, my first impressions of Zinfandel when I lived in the UK was like, oh, that's California, it's high alcohol, it's overripe, it's jammy, really goes against my um, kind of taste. And then when I moved to California and I was going to wineries and to taste, kind of changed my whole thinking of Zinfandel, that you can make great wine from the grape. And these are great examples of that, that these are serious wines, they have that fruit forward aspect to them, because yeah. it's California and it's Zinfandel, that's the representation of place yeah. that you've been talking about, but there's the balance and there's a depth to them as well yeah. that, that lingers on the palate and makes you think, hey, I'm drinking a serious wine here, yeah. not just some fruit forward, high alcohol wine. And it again comes back to all the things I already said is that find that perfect varietal for the perfect site mm-hmm. and grow it there. And I think part of the challenge is, is that you know our modern wine industry in California is still so young. I think we're still figuring a lot of that stuff out. At the same time though, kind of thinking about the Zinfandel, it's the great California grape because it that is. was the most planted one in the 19th yeah. century. And I don't know if the immigrants at the time were thinking about different grape varieties and how they no, worked, God, no. but they knew that this one did. Yeah. And that's why they really got attached to it. Well, it's why I love the discussion about old vines because when people talk about old vines, the, the common um, you know, uh, <laughs> conversation is that the wine is good because the vine is old and I'm not saying that that's not true but I think it's very misguided because the wine is good because it grows good grapes because trust me when I say you know farmers there's farm no one gets rich farming you know you have to be able to make money doing that and you make money by growing good crops and if at some point that site was not producing high quality fruit it would have been pulled out and they would have planted corn there they would have planted cherries they would have planted peaches they would have planted cabernet something that would have been higher quality year in and year out and would have made more money for the family and so you know you can call it chicken and the egg but you know an old vine vineyard does not produce great wine because the vines are old it produces great wine because it's an incredible site for that varietal. And a hundred years ago, when those immigrants were planted it, they just happened to get it perfectly right on that site. And that's why that vineyard sustained. It's because it continually produced high quality. Now, do old vines factor in to qualitative metrics? Absolutely. But it is not the reason that old vineyards make great wine. That's a really interesting discussion because I agree what you're saying. But then you have examples like in South Africa, there's some really great old vines Sanso being made. And the only reason they planted that was because it's high yields. And so those vines are just kind of being left there, neglected, and now winemakers are coming back to them. So it's like the reasons for planting that great variety in that place 
weren't always kind of the, the right reasons. Absolutely but, not. But then somehow the old vines work. Well, like I said, they got lucky, but yeah. South Africa isn't all old vines because some things didn't work. Yeah. You know? And again, if you come back to the adage that, you know, okay, why, why is the perception that old vines produce the highest quality fruit? Um, I think part of it is romance. Part of it is lower yields, more concentrated flavors. Okay. Um, but it is, as you say, it's a representation of place and that people have been doing this for years for a reason. And, and that's what I would come back to because there's a lot of argument around the yields, right? Well, I can take a five-year-old vineyard and I can craft whatever yields I want out of it. I can make it produce one ton per acre. I can make it produce two tons per acre. I, guess I can the, probably make it produce the, five tons per acre. The difference is you, you have a choice there. Yeah. Whereas the old wines, you don't have a choice. True. But if the discussion's about yields, wouldn't you rather have the canopy that you can better suit? Because none of the old vineyards had you know, any kind of trellis on them. You know, they were all, you know, um, goblet pruned, if you will, or head pruned. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to me, the more pertinent argument, I'm getting off track, is you want to have a mature root system. You want to have a mature root system. You want 100% of the vine's energy going into ripening fruit and fruit development because it has all the nutrients, all the moisture that it needs from its developed root system. And that's, I think, when you start mm -hmm. to produce the highest quality. And that might be at year 20, that might be at year 25, it might be at year 40, you know, depending on what soils we're going in and how easy it is for the vines to, you know, permeate those soils and, and how much nutrient water it needs to find on its own. But I do think that when you have that mature root system, that you can, you know, increase the quality through your pruning practices and you can take a 25 year old vine and the perfect example is that and I'm being self-serving here I fully admit that but these two wines that you're drinking right now they were planted all of our three wines we're gonna try were planted between 98 and 2000 so you know you have you know vineyards that are right around 20 years old and I think are producing some of the best fruit in Sonoma County if not California for Zinfandel and so how much weight are we placing on the age of the vine? How much weight are we placing on the terroir? And how much weight are we placing on the management of those vines in that terroir? So you've raised um, a question. I was teaching to ACT Diploma a couple of weeks ago, and we were discussing old vines and this exact same conversation. And someone asked me, when do the roots stop developing? Or when do they stop digging? When do they just keep on digging, digging, digging? Or is there a point where they slow down? Um, so I believe that there would be a point when they they slow down, when they found the nutrient, the water that they need to sustain themselves, you know, they're going to, you know, transfer that energy to fruit development. That doesn't mean that that doesn't change, you know, through weather cycles. Um, but, you know, having that mature root system, in my opinion, is critical mm -hmm. to fruit quality. And 20 years is kind of that sweet spot. Yeah. So now we're going to try the cemetery vineyard. Cemetery vineyard, exactly. And so 2016, um, the 2017 cemetery will not be released until October. And it's just a different animal. So again, if we're going from, you know, let's say south to uh, northeast, you've got Jack's Cabin, and then you climb up the top of the ridge and off the backside is Rockpile Ridge, and then you have another ditch, and then you have cemetery. So cemetery faces west where um, Jack's Cabin faces south, 
Bakbao Ridge faces north. So totally different sun exposure. Cemetery is also planted right over the top of an earthquake fault. So, excuse me, virtually no water retention in the soil. So sun exposure on the top of the canopy, extremely shallow soils, very little water retention. We often describe cemetery as a Cabernet Drinker's Zinfandel. It produces unbelievable tannins for Zinfandel. It always has this extremely brooding, you know, earth tones. And there's a, there's a beautiful ripe fruit to there, but it's a very dark berry flavor profile. You know, and almost more of a blackberry cobbler than it is fresh berry fruit. But I think the tannin profile and the minerality of this vineyard is what really make it stand out. Yes, it's amazing how completely different this wine yeah. is because it's um, it's really meaty. Yeah, and almost sanguine in a sense, yeah. you know. And again, sixteen versus seventeen. So sixteen was a cooler vintage, um, didn't have the you know the heat that we had in seventeen, so not as much overt ripeness. And so it's that's why I said it's not an apples to apples mm -hmm. comparison, but still a tr really true representation of the site. Mm. And then it has. All three wines have great tannic structure, but as you mentioned, has the most apparent tannins, the most gripping tannins, more like Cabernet, as you said. And then, but there is that ripeness that's in the middle, yeah. just that ripe core. Yeah, it does have that in the, at Western sun exposure. You get, you know, certainly a lot of uh, a lot of sun. And this is the first block that we pick in Rockpile every year. Um, you know, you just uh, again really, really low yields, and with all that sun, it tends to ripen not only with the sun, but with all the upturned rock, because of the earthquake fault, we have a lot of heat retention in the rock or in the soil, if you will. And so it just tends to develop pretty fast, but a very unique expression of Zinfandel. Yeah, so all three wines are completely different. So if you really want to explore how Zinfandel can express the line, these three wines are great examples. And I think what you've talked about all the way through is a sense of place, which is another way of saying terroir. Exactly. And so there's so many factors coming into this, the great variety, the land, the situation, the elevation, the fog or the lack of fog, um, and also those human factors that mm -hmm. lakes and moons exist without that human intervention. And your career wouldn't have been wouldn't have developed in the same way without that. Yeah, <laughs> it is pretty amazing when you think about that. One of the most unique AVAs in Sonoma County, if not the United States, if not the world, is man-made. <laughs> you know, right. and don't get me wrong. I think that that ridge line where our family's property is would be an amazing place to grow grapes if Lake Sonoma wasn't there, but there's no doubt that it would be very different. Yeah, the wines would taste completely yeah. different. So thank you for um, sharing all your stories. My pleasure. And thank these you wines for as having well. me. Yeah, so I definitely recommend uh, seeking them out. Great. Thank you. My pleasure.